what I thought I could do was simply write a book about it and then be done with it. I had to do research into a lot of things I didn't really understand. So that was a 13-year period after I left where the group was still operating. Once I started reading these survivor stories and the tragedies that had happened, I really felt I had no choice but to become an advocate for these people, not to speak for them, but to acknowledge what happened to them was true and to be an advocate. So in that sense, yes, that cult life is still with me, but I can't live with myself if I just walk away and say, that's over now. So there's a lot of psychological damage to that generation who were born in the group. Once I understood what had happened to them, I had to speak up. I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, we chat with Perry Bulwer of Port Alberni on Vancouver Island about his time in living with the Children of God communes across the world. Bulwer dropped out of high school at age 16 and for 20 years was a member of the cult, also known as the family. He now advocates for second-generation cult survivors and has recently written a book called Misguided, My Jesus Freak Life in a Doomsday Cult. Perry Bulwer joins us on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Perry. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad that you're spotlighting this story. There's some very little-known history here in Canada, so I'm glad to highlight that. You joined the Children of God or the family at a very young age. Perhaps we could talk about what happened just prior to that. You wrote in your book that you were just becoming a teenager. You were very attracted to psychedelia with the Beatles Sgt. Pepper album. There was hippies and the Flower Children movement. I was raised as a Catholic, quite into the church. I was an altar boy, so I was really interested in spirituality, etc. But as a young teen, I drifted from the church, and at that time, as you mentioned, the hippie movement and that generation, I was a big Beatles fan. George Harrison with his My Sweet Lord, and he had quite an influence on my age group during that period with his sort of spiritual songs. What was going on in the wider culture really fed my worldview in terms of spirituality, but also my political consciousness. Here in Port Alberni, many of your listeners will know that it's one of the few places in North America to ever be hit by a tsunami. So that was in 1964, when I was nine years old. That was a, a major disaster. It was quite awe-inspiring for me as a kid. Flash forward to the early 70s, and the United States is conducting nuclear bomb tests on the Aleutian Islands and Chitka Island specifically. I was probably 15, attending my first public protest. Those tests birthed the Greenpeace movement which started as a protest movement against these nuclear bomb tests. The Cold War, and this really had a major impact on me, of course, growing up in front of the television, watching live reports from the Vietnam War. All of this fed my worldview at the same time. And that summer of 15, I hitchhiked to California with a friend more as an adventure. His goal was to go to Disneyland. I wanted to see the land of the hippies. I, I had wanderlust. I wanted to travel and see the world. Of course, Port Alberni is a small little mill town and didn't have a lot of options for me. And I was searching and seeking and looking for alternatives. You're 15. You and your bud hitchhiked to California. How do you get across the border? And who were these people that stopped along the highway to give you a ride? It's funny because we didn't really plan. We just assumed we could walk across the border. 
my friend's parents dropped us off at the border on the Canadian side. <laughs> and we walked through the border crossing through the office. An agent there asked our age. And of course, we're both 15, underage. And said, well, you, you need parents' permission to cross the border. <laughs> and so we were undaunted. We walked out of sight of the border office and stuck our thumbs out. And a couple girls slightly older than us, Americans returning from a trip to Vancouver, picked us up. We told them what had just happened. They told us, if they ask, just tell them you're from Seattle and you're going back home. And that's what we did. In those days, the borders were much more relaxed than they are today. And we didn't even realize that hitchhiking was illegal in Washington state. And so as we're starting our journey, we'd see the signs on the highway, hitchhiking prohibited. But in those days, hitchhiking was very easy. Everybody stopped. My friend and I, we both had long hair. We were both tall. So we looked a bit older than our actual age. But every time somebody would pick us up, they always remarked that, wow, like how brave are you guys, these kids <laughs> hitchhiking to California? Just very naive. And of course, remember, this was right around the time that the Manson cult was in the news and the trials were happening. My mother never discussed it with me, but I'm sure that must have been in the back of their mind. It was a risky thing to do, but as a teenager, your brain's not fully developed and you don't see the risks involved. So we got picked up easily. We had no trouble. And when you were in California, what happened? Dave had some relatives in San Jose, so we stopped there first. And that's where I had my first LSD experience. It was okay. The hallucinations were mild, and I actually interpreted it, what was happening through a spiritual lens. So, for example, when I saw a tree seeming to be alive, I could see the life force in the tree. I, I interpreted all that in a spiritual way. And, and in fact, before we got there, we got picked up by some Jesus freaks in a van in Oregon. And they started preaching to us in the van as we're going down the highway. And they told us all about this lighthouse they had. And I'm thinking that it was an actual real lighthouse. And they were trying to coax us into coming with them to visit. My friend wasn't interested. He had no interest in religion. I was really interested. If I was on my own, I would have gone along. Flash forward 50 years later, when I'm researching this book, I actually looked up this lighthouse in Oregon, and it turned out to be a commune of Jesus people. It also has a history of abuse. Years later, it was an abusive organization. I could have easily got sucked into them if I'd been on my own. We do our thing at Disneyland and come back. So those were the two significant events that happened. And less than nine months later, I was back in Port Alberni, I meet the children of God. How did you meet the children of God and what initially attracted you to their cult and their teachings? At the end of that summer trip, I turned 16 and started grade 11. And I just didn't fit in at high school. I was skipping out. I was doing a lot of drugs, continued to do LSD. I had a bad trip one night that really scared me. So I started to be alone and not hanging out with my friends. And so one night I'm in a Chinese restaurant on the weekend, having a coffee, and these two strangers come up to me inside the restaurant and start chatting me up about Jesus and giving me some gospel tracks. They only spent about five minutes, but I thought, there's something unusual about them. And then a few minutes later, I bump into an old friend, so we're sitting at a booth now, and 
those two strangers come back into the restaurant. It was like they targeted me. They saw something in me, something receptive. They ended up talking to me for several hours. My friend finally left because, again, he wasn't interested in religion. They were members of the Children of God, the local commune. And they were basically taking advantage of my Catholic upbringing. The dogma and the teachings I learned in the Catholic Church weren't that much different from what they were preaching, and they were taking advantage of that. I didn't know that at the time, but that's how I first met them. And then about a week or two later, I'm in a different restaurant. One of those guys comes in, he sees me, and he invites me to go to their commune. And he had two other teen girls who were coming, so I felt comfortable to go with him. And that's what really hooked me that night. The commune leader and his wife took me aside privately and started really hammering home their gospel message. And again, this was all pure Christianity at this point, just basically evangelical, fundamentalist Christianity. And I was just captivated by it. So I began spending all my extra time there. Before I actually moved into the commune, I'd be going to class at school and I'd start preaching to classmates, which was really unusual. And so they all started calling me a Jesus freak, which was terminology for wider Jesus people movement. And when you moved into the commune, how did your family and friends react when they learned about your involvement? I only learned about my friends' reactions later, but it was a shock. My parents were getting concerned because I was spending so much time at the commune. One day I'm at school, I'm called to the office and told that my parents are outside waiting to speak to me. They wanted me to talk to one of the Catholic priests. I had stopped going to church a couple years earlier, so I went and talked to the Catholic priest, and he wasn't overly concerned. He told me, don't do anything sudden. And of course, I did exactly that. Again, within weeks of meeting these people, I left home, I dropped out of school. My mother was in tears the night I told her I'm moving out. I'm 16, and as she said since then, how do you control a 16-year-old when their mind's made up? He's going to do it, so best that we stay friendly with them rather than push them away. She actually drove me to the commune. A couple days later, both her and my mom came over to make amends and, be, and remain friends. But that night I joined, the first night I showed up at the commune, the commune leaders were very scared because I was a minor. And unknown to me, there had been controversies all over the states and in Vancouver itself. Just three months earlier, a series of Vancouver Sun news articles came out expressing a lot of parental concerns around this group capturing their young teens and encouraging them to drop out of society. I didn't know any of that. The commune leaders were very worried, so they took me home to get my parents' permission. My dad was so upset, he wouldn't give any signed permission. He just said to them that he was so embarrassed and ashamed he wouldn't go to the police. So that was enough. I didn't understand the controversy swirling around me until much later in hindsight. I was just this naive 16-year-old excited for this adventure to go into the world with these people to preach the gospel. Who were these people, Perry? Who was the leader of the Children of God, and, and where did the whole thing start? It goes back to California, which is funny. I didn't actually bump into them in California while I was there, but that's where it started in 1968. David Burke, he was at the time in his 40s, 
he came from a long line of well-known evangelists in the United States. His mother was one of, if not the first females with a Christian radio program. She had an evangelical ministry all over the States. And so he was raised in that environment. He became a pastor himself, but in the 50s got disillusioned with the church, which was the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Interestingly enough, the church that our former prime minister, Stephen Harper, joined because his wife was a member of that church. So he drops out. He's got four kids who are young teens. He goes to visit his mother in California. She's got this small little ministry of going down to Huntington Beach and giving free sandwiches to the hippies on the beach. So David Berg shows up and starts to help her with this. They get set up in a coffee shop, and he starts preaching to these teens and hippies on the beach. So this is 68, 69. At this time, there was a Jesus People movement, like a very broad movement. It came out of the charismatic movement. These were young people who were maybe disillusioned with the church, maybe still involved somewhat with mainstream churches, but really living the gospel in a way. David Berg and the Children of God, which his little group became known as, was the most radical of these because he was quite radical in his preaching. So they got chased out of Huntington Beach. He had for years been living in a caravan, trailers, traveling around. By 1969, there's probably 100 followers of him, and they're all traveling around the States. And this is where the story is interesting, where I didn't actually get to this part in my book. There's so much detail to tell, but it's an interesting fact that as they traveled around the States, they separated, and then they all came together in Laurentide, Quebec, near Montreal. They all showed up at a campground there that was provided to them for free, and they organized a group. They had a formal structure of leadership, and that started in Canada. Where the story involves British Columbia is that they're an evangelical group. The main message was to preach the gospel to all the world before Jesus can come back. The gospel's got to be preached. So they're all about moving on going to all the world. And that started in the States. They came up to Canada on the West Coast by taking over another Jesus People group in Seattle called the Jesus People Army. The Children of God moved up to Seattle and took over that group. They also had communes in Vancouver with maybe 100 members. They had coffee shops, several communes, printing press, a bakery. And in Vancouver, they were receiving government funding from the BC government because supposedly they were helping youth escape drug addiction and this type of thing. And so they had a cover story. The Children of God took them over. That prompted this series of articles I mentioned in the Vancouver Sun. Unfortunately, I never knew about those articles when I met the Children of God in Port Alberta because if I had, perhaps I would have seen some warning signs. And I was naive about that. And none of the adults in my life, including the Catholic priests that I talked to, although they had been aware of those Vancouver Sun articles, never mentioned it to me. Nobody did. I went in blind, blind faith. Perry, you mentioned that the group had printing presses. And in the book, you talk about living in Hawaii and Japan and Korea and the Philippines as part of being with the various yeah. locations of the children of God all over the world. You were yeah. handing out pamphlets on information? I should mention that it's a little-known fact that 
here in British Columbia, besides the Vancouver communes, the children of God also had the commune in Port Alberni that I joined. A couple months after I joined, I moved to a Nanaimo commune. And from there, I went to Victoria commune. I've heard a lot of people express a lot of surprise over the fact that this religious cult had communes scattered all over Vancouver Island and then also other places in interior British Columbia. Where the printing presses and the publications that we sold to the public comes in is that David Berg, at a certain point, stopped living with his followers. He isolated himself. And that's a complicated story involving legal officials, his own personal security. He was afraid of persecution and hiding from legal authorities who were always investigating the group over claims of brainwashing teens and kidnapping teens. And so David Berg, what he did was he communicated with his followers by having all his sermons and his talks transcribed into pamphlets that were then distributed to the communes. Some of those were for internal purposes only, just for members. Others were more of a gospel message for the public. When we started out, most of our income came from begging and getting donations from businesses, etc. When David Berg hit on this idea of why don't you sell my literature, sell my preachings, that became a big money earner for the group over time. And that's where the printing presses come in. They would publish thousands and thousands of what we called Mo letters. David Berg's alias at the time was Moses David. So we call them Mo. These letters became a big money earner all over the world. Part of the very esoteric teachings of the group that only members could know. It was three months before I was told the real sort of hidden message about David Berg. He claimed that he was the final end-time prophet of God living in the end times and that the Bible mentions him specifically because in the Old Testament, there's some verses that refer to a new King David in the latter days. So he has this convoluted series of prophecies and predictions claiming that he's this person spoken of in the Bible. We're living in the end time, and he came out with very specific predictions that Jesus was coming back in 1993. For that to happen, a whole other series of events had to happen, including the destruction of America. He was very anti-American because of the reception he got in his own country, chased by authorities, etc. So he's claiming that America turned its back on God, so God was going to destroy America. And in 73, there was news of this major comet that was going to show up that was supposed to be the most spectacular ever, the scientists said. So Berg latches onto that and he writes that this is a sign of America's destruction, Comet Kahootek. Of course, it never panned out and it wasn't as spectacular as they had predicted. It was visible, but nothing like the predictions that the astronomers had said. We published in Seattle thousands and thousands of these warning letters, America's coming destruction in 40 days. I remember going to Seattle Husky football team passing out thousands and thousands of spectators in the stadiums there, and also the NBA team at the time, Supersonics. When we left Seattle to go to Hawaii, a TV nightly news program filmed us headlines declaring the children of God are fleeing America. And so that's how I ended up in Hawaii. 
which was a sort of a jumping off spot to go into Asia. And so from there, I went to Japan, Korea, the Philippines. So that's the sequence of events that brought me to those countries. When Today in BC continues, Perry Bulwer talks about the psychological and emotional toll of living in a cult and advocating for second-generation cult survivors. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. What events transpired that you decided you wanted to leave the cult? Years later, when you look back on that, was there new information that you uncovered? This is where the story gets a little complicated. And even some people who know my whole story wonder about this particular event. So I'm in the Philippines and I have a two-year missionary visa to stay there. After a year, new leadership came into the country that was much harsher than the previous leadership in the Philippines and started imposing a series of rules and with codes of conduct that were just very arbitrary. You could get punished very easily for minor things. And it happened to me more than once. And I was getting fed up with it. Me and another member got into an argument, which was a really big no in the group. There shouldn't be any dissension of any kind because it breaks the harmony of the group. And so the leader punished us by sending us on a road trip together to work out our problems. While on that road trip, I just walked away. My passport was still in the headquarters in Manila. I had almost no money just from what I had from selling literature. I was lost and confused. So I just hitchhiked and I actually hitchhiked a ride on a freighter going to a southern island of the Philippines where I knew there was no Children of God members. I just needed to get away. I ended up spending a year there just spinning my wheels. Really what I was doing was waiting for all of David Berg's prophecies to start happening. I was really hoping for America's destruction. That's how obscene a a doomsday cult like that can be, because you actually want the world to vent, because it means you're right. (laughs) Your beliefs that Jesus is coming back it's all right. So you wanted confirmation. And that's how I was. My visa came to an end. I had to leave the country. I came back to Canada with the help of my parents. My mother borrowed some money from my grandmother to pay for my airfare. I came back to Port Alberni. And again, I got some odd jobs just getting by. And although I wasn't living in a Children of God commune anymore, I wasn't officially in the group. Psychologically, I was still there. I still believed all the beliefs I had prior. I still believed David Berg was a prophet. I still believed his predictions. I just never told anybody. I kept it a secret. Another serendipitous moment happens. I bump into two Children of God members again who are on a road trip, passing through Port Alberni, passing out their literature. They see me in a parking lot and we start talking. They had a little notebook with my parents' name in it. So they knew who I was. And long story short, within months, I was back in the Children of God. So at the very end of 1979, I follow one of those members I'd met 
She was now living in Halifax. I took the train across Canada to join the commune in Halifax in 1980. And we joined her sister-in-law and her husband, who were also members who had a converted school bus. For the next year, the year of 1980, we lived in a converted school bus and we traveled all over Western Canada, all over Alberta and British Columbia, visiting communes, passing out our literature. We had plans to take the bus to Central America to avoid the worst consequences of America's destruction. And at the time, the Cold War is still heating up. America has installed some Trident nuclear missiles near Seattle. We're constantly watching the news. Ronald Reagan became governor of California, and he was one of our vicious enemies. He had set up a deprogramming unit to rescue people from the children of God. That's where the deprogramming whole phenomenon began with the Children of God members and a man called Black Lightning, his nickname, who got into legal trouble over deprogramming because they were kidnapping people. So all of these things were happening that made us really fearful. We wanted to leave the States, but the bus broke down. Me and my new wife and two stepkids came back to Port Alberni. We spent the next two years here in Port Alberni, 82, 83, saving up money to go to the mission field. So in 1984, we did that. We left Canada and went to Asia again. We spent three months in Malaysia, then on to Macau, which was a Portuguese colony off of China at the time, across from Hong Kong. We then went to Hong Kong, back to Japan. So we were back into the communal life of the children of God through the 80s. I mention in my book, and I describe in more detail, but the main motive for me remaining in the group, as long as I did, was those end-time beliefs. I truly believed that he was an end-time prophet. He predicted, like many other Christians do, the seven-year period at the end time, and that seven years is all related to complicated Bible theology. But there's a specific seven-year period where the Antichrist comes to power. And so leading up to the Antichrist arising on the scene, these other political events had to happen, including U.S. destruction, which is why Children of God members all fled America. So that was what kept me in this group. We just kept waiting for that. As I witnessed things or experienced things that maybe caused me to doubt, I put the doubts in the back of my mind because... I believed once Jesus comes back in 1993, all my answers and all my questions and doubts would be answered. Perry, when did you ultimately decide to leave the cult? Leaving a cult, which is your entire worldview, is a very difficult thing to do. And that's just the beginning of the difficulties. Leaving isn't actually the hardest part, but it is hard. As I mentioned, all these doubts started to creep in, and the closer we got, to the mid to 1990 when, you know, the Antichrist should have already been on the scene and he wasn't, and things weren't developing the way Berg's predictions said they would, those caused enormous doubts. So I'm just dealing with those. And at the same time, I I heard about a a tragic suicide of a 13-year-old teen, which was all hushed up and it was very confusing. I then began to hear about and witness other very horrific child abuse. That was the nail in the coffin for me. That did it. 
I had been in a particular compound in Macau where the so-called delinquent teens were being mistreated as part of their retraining. And that just shattered me when I saw what was happening. And so I began to make a plan. I'm now in Asia. From Macau, I go back to Japan, but I, I have no money. Members didn't have our own money. Any money if we earned on the streets selling literature or videos or whatever, it was all given back to the group. You had no personal money. I had no support. Trying to plan escape was very difficult. I knew I wanted to leave. And it's a story with a lot of twists and turns, so I can't get into the whole story here. Parts of it read like a movie script almost, where I finally managed to get out of the cult. As I said, leaving isn't the hardest part. So I come back to Canada, go on welfare at first and wondering what I'm going to do with my life. I'm now mid-30s, no money, no possessions, high school dropout, no experiences of any kind. I've got to recreate my life, reinvent myself, find out who I really am. I've just left 20 years in that mindset. So what do I replace that with? And it turns out that education was the answer. A year later, after I returned to Port Alberni, I started studies at what's now called Vancouver Island University. And basically, I used that as my cult recovery process. But psychologically, I was still very confused. There was a lot of things I needed to deal with from my past life in the cult that I had no way of dealing with. I wasn't connected with any other ex-members. I didn't understand mental health issues at all. I didn't even understand that concept. Although I had now rejected David Berg's teachings for the first few years, I still was a Christian. I still believed. I decided once my studies started, I was doing a BA in a liberal studies program, which was English literature and the Western thought, which is perfect for me. I just decided to put all my beliefs on hold. I didn't really deal with it. I just had to survive financially and get educated. But it was through those four years of education that I had some aha moments. We believed in the cult in a literal translation of the Bible, that everything was literally true. So the book of Genesis, when you count the years, basically says the, the world is about 6,000 years old. In my Bible, which I still have, the King James Bible, on Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in a note in the margin, it says 4004 BC. And so I had a hard time with that concept, even in the group, but I had no way to challenge it. But at university, I started reading books and I read Darwin's On the Origin of Species, for example. And reading that was like, aha, so that's how it could work. That first year, I spent hours in the local library, the Vancouver Island Library, just reading books. I describe it as a banquet for the mind. I was starving intellectually. And to just go into the library and have access to all these books that were forbidden for me was just like a banquet, a feast for the mind. And yeah, it was education that helped me overcome all of that indoctrination and start to recreate a new life for me. Is the children of God, the family, the cult, is it still part of your everyday life? I have to say it is in the sense that I continue to be an advocate for the thousands of people who were born and raised in the group, who we refer to as the second generation. So people like myself who joined the group 
although I was a teen, most joined as adults, were considered the first generation. The second generation, the children who were born and raised in it, they suffered far more than any of us first generation. They were raised basically in total isolation from society, and all they knew was the cult's worldview. So they had a very restricted life. After I finished my studies, after Vancouver Island University, I went to Vancouver, ended up at law school at UBC, and became a lawyer. And it was after I was called to the bar that I decided I now have to deal with my past. And what I thought I could do was simply write a book about it and then be done with it. Once I started to do that, I had to do research into a lot of things I didn't really understand. And of course, that was a 13-year period after I left where the group was still operating. And that was a period I didn't know anything about. So once I went onto the internet and started reading these survivor stories and the tragedies that had happened, I really felt I had no choice but to become an advocate for these people, not to speak for them, but to acknowledge what happened to them was true and to be an advocate in that sense. I've continued doing that. There are some academics who take the position that Anyone who leaves a religious group, apostates, they're not reliable witnesses. They exaggerate and they tell apostate tales that are just not true or exaggerated. The answer to that by the second generation of the children of God who came out and started telling their stories of abuse, they say, we were never members. We're not apostates because we weren't members. We didn't join the children of God. Our parents joined it. So there's a very bright distinction there between the first and second generation. And so I've written an article, for example, in an academic journal challenging one of these apologists who downplay all the abuse that happened to the children in the group. And of course, in my book, I describe a lot of those activities and a lot of these issues. So in that sense, yes, that cult life is still with me, but only because I feel like after 13 years of burying it to survive and get an education, I can't do that anymore. I can't live with myself if I just walk away and say, that's over now, because the people are still the walking wounded, survivors of that abuse, which goes to the core of their identity because they, they were born into it. Many still suffer today, although many have left and had successful lives. Some haven't. There's been many suicides, over a hundred that we know of, and it's probably much higher. So there's a lot of psychological damage to that generation who were born in the group. Once I turned my back to it and understood what had happened to them, I had to speak up. I started doing that in 2004 and basically have continued to this day to be an advocate in that sense. I'd like to thank Perry Bulwer for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts in iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google podcasts. From hidden local hotspots to outrageous wildlife rescues and trend-setting hotels, westcoasttraveler.com shares the latest travel news from your local community and beyond. 
Travel the spectacular west coast of the U.S. and Canada without leaving your armchair and start taking notes for your next adventure. Make your next vacation or staycation the best it can be. Visit westcoasttraveler.com.